You know, I was on a, um, a, a little insight. I'm really psyched. I get to use the touchscreen this morning. Oh, I'm so psyched about this. Um, just had to get that off. Woof, get, get that off my system. Um, um, I was on a flight coming back from Birmingham a few weeks ago, and I love flying. I love traveling, and I love being on airplanes because I love the opportunity to have spiritual conversations with people on airplanes. And I always pray, Lord, give me somebody who wants to have a conversation. And so coming back, I found myself in the, in the middle row of the, like, the three-seat aisles. Like, whoa, I got a couple on either side of me. And, um, and so because I'm shallow, there were two guys. I thought, oh, this guy looks more like my kind of guy. So I struck up a conversation with him. And then we got a conversation going, and I redirected us to spiritual matters. And he had all sorts of kooky spiritual thoughts about stuff. But I could tell he didn't really want to engage. I tried, and I thought, oh, this is gonna, I'm going to be throwing pearls before swine here. This isn't going anywhere. And then he pulled out his headphones, and he plugged in. And I thought, darn, darn, I really thought I had something going here. At which point, the guy to my right said, excuse me, I was eavesdropping on your conversation. And I've got some questions about God. Can you answer them? I thought, oh, all right. And, and so, you know, what does this tell us? It tells us that we never know who God is working on and who's interested in learning more about him. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to equip, provide a little bit of equipping to all of you so that you feel more capable of having fun and having a conversation with somebody in whatever spot they are in their spiritual trajectory as they're seeking to step closer to God. Does that sound okay? All right, awesome. You know, there is this incredible story. The description appears in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. If you uh, have been a Christian believer for a long time, you know this story. But it's, um, in essence, it's Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. I'll summarize most of it. There's a, um, uh, there's a man who is possessed by lots of demonic spirits, and it's left him... Um, in a state of tremendous turmoil, and he is strong, and he, he can't live in society because his behavior is so crazy, and they try to shackle him and chain him up. He can break the chains. He cuts himself. He wails in the night. All this stuff is going on, and he lives in an area. He lives in an uh, area where there are lots of tombs. That's where he's decided to stake his claim, and then Jesus comes along and heals him and drives out the demons. It is so startling what goes on that we see this description then, starting with verse 14. Those tending, and, and oh, and Jesus does it. There's a, a very large herd of pigs on a hillside, and Jesus drives the demons into the pigs, and they rush down into the water and drown. 2,000 of them, it says. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with Jesus. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. You know, what really catches my attention when I hear that story, and there's about 50 things that can, is this is something I wasn't expecting. And what we're going to talk about here is what today, this is the magic of the touchscreen, right? 
we're going to talk about today this, is that God is really real. We're going to equip you to talk about this. But here's what catches my mind. Attention to this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is a stunning thing. So many people got told by Jesus what to do. And the question is, did they follow through on it or not? This guy is apparently a man of action because he doesn't just go home and tell his family. You're thinking, well, I don't know what the Decapolis is. I'll tell you what the Decapolis is. The Decapolis was an, a region of 10 cities, deck, the deck, the 10 part, Decapolis, on the uh, the east side of the Jordan River. That area was, so if the Jewish part was on the west side of the Jordan River, Jerusalem, etc. on the east side of the Jordan River, it was a Gentile, meaning non-Jewish area, which explains why they had pigs, because Jews wouldn't have pigs. And so, but he goes, and throughout this whole area, this whole 10-city area, he talks about what Jesus did in his life. Isn't that incredible? And, and what's the response he gets from all the people? And the people were amazed. Aren't you glad that God doesn't ask you to do the same thing? Well, actually, he does. He does ask you to do that very thing with your life. That, you can consider that either good news or bad news. Uh, on the bad news front, you can say, whoa, God wants me to tell people about the great things that Jesus has done. Or on the good news side, you can say, whoa, God wants me to tell people about the great things that Jesus has done. And so today what I want to do is I want to help you. I want to help you be able to do that. Our big idea for today is you can help people believe in God and he wants you to. You can help people to believe in God and he wants you to. Now, before I go any further, I want to paint a little picture here. And that is the language that I'm going to be using this morning is, is language that's going to feel most comfortable and is going to sound like it's geared towards people who are already Christian believers, people who believe that God is real and, and that, uh, 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 that Jesus was the Messiah, was sent on by God and was born as a man, what we could call Christmas, and then after, um, and lived for 33 years, the last four years of that, of which during was a powerful time of ministry, and then he was crucified by the Romans under Pontius Pilate and was three days later resurrected from the dead. And so if that's where you stand spiritually right now, it will sound like the language is coming right to you. But if that's not you, that's okay, and that's great. And I just would ask your um, uh, uh, um, flexibility and just to take in what I'm saying and reconstruct the words a little bit in a way that sounds like I'm speaking directly to you, okay? Because uh, I had to choose one frame of reference for what my words were, and it wasn't going to be exactly perfect, but I will do my best to make sure that it fits. And I'll tell you, that the content that you're hearing, if you're not a Christian believer right now, I expect will speak straight to your heart and will make tremendous sense, okay? Amen. We see this verse here from 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I think this poses for Christian believers a six-part challenge from God. And that's what we want to look at, or at least start by looking at here, Okay. Because each of these words or phrases in here is something powerful. This first one says, always. That doesn't mean some of the time. It doesn't mean when we want to. It means to always be ready because we never know what God is going to throw our way. That's 
You never know if, it's, if that's going to be while you're gassing up your car and you're talking to the guy pumping your gas, or you're talking to somebody standing at the sideline of one of your kids' sporting, sports games, or whether you're in the checkout line at the convenience store or talking to your neighbor at a barbecue. We never know when God is going to put us in place of somebody who is primed and ready to hear something more about him. And so God wants us to always be ready for that. In the same level, he wants us to be prepared. You know, it's not until we stop and think about it do we realize that we are constantly making small preparations in our lives. We wash our clothes so that when we want to get dressed for work, we have clean clothes to wear. Uh, We go to the grocery store and buy food, or we pull the hamburger out in the morning so that when we want to make dinner in the evening, it's there and ready to go. Uh, We stop at the gas station and fill up with gas before we run out of gas so that our car's going to keep running. We make tons of these little preparations during the day. You hear that? We make tons of them. In the same way, God wants us to be prepared to talk about Jesus because we never know who he's going to cycle into our midst. You know, there's this interesting thing. Everybody in the whole world is on some sort of trajectory or some point in spiritual matters. This thing called the angle scale is just sort of interesting. It goes from zero to 60 here. Somebody at the bottom with no awareness of God. Somebody coming to the point here, they've made a decision to surrender to Jesus and then maturing beyond it. You don't have to know this, but I want you to simply understand that everybody in the whole world, regardless of what they say uh, out loud or what you see from them, they are somewhere on this scale. And, so, and we don't have to know where they are, but we just have to be aware, huh? Everybody's somewhere and they need something to go on for them. Everybody is at some current level of spiritual thinking. And we don't know what God is going to do, but because of that, we need to be prepared to give an answer. And so let's be clear. If we're giving an answer, it's because they're asking us a question. If, we're, if we have to prepare ourselves to give an answer, it's because they've done something to indicate that they were interested. I had two guys on the plane. He was not interested at all. I didn't know going into it, but he was interested, wasn't he? And there's a, way, a verse that tells us and makes that clear to us. From John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. What we don't see with our eyes is that God is constantly working to draw different people to himself. If you know somebody, you think, well, this person is never interested in spiritual matters. But one day they ask me a question. There's a reason for that because God is drawing them. And I'm convinced that God draws all people multiple times in their lives, probably way more than I could estimate. And so some people, they're cold, they're not interested. The guy in the plane here, this guy was. God was working on him in some way. And as a result, he was ready to receive an answer. You know, here's the way I view this. I like to fish. But here's the fishing I don't like. I don't like the fishing where I cast out a bobber and I've got like the straw hat on and a thing is, and I just sort of sit there waiting watching the bobber, waiting for something to happen, falling asleep. That's not my kind of fishing, right? I don't like that. What I like to do my fishing is I like to, I cast over here, and I reel in, I cast over here, see if there's anything going on. Nothing striking there, I go over here, I cast over here, I do this. Cast over here, ooh, 
fish on, there's somebody over here that's interested. It's exactly this principle here. You understand that? I don't know where the interest is going to be with the fish, so I cast around. That's exactly what I do with people. Why is that? Because to everyone who asks you, I don't know where the people are or who they are who are going to ask, so I just cast and I cast and I cast. This guy sitting next to me on my plane to the left, my feelings aren't hurt. I don't know. I'm a salesman, right? I'm just trying to engage with people. Not interested? Okay. Hope God works on you. Ooh, you're interested? I'd love to talk to you. And, and here's the thing. We're asking what? To give a reason for the hope. that we, for the hope. Think about this. When we're talking about the hope that we have, that hope is not because we just got a job promotion. It's not a hope that we just lost 20 pounds. It's not, a, it's not the hope that we think our kid is going to graduate from high school. You got to be really clear about this. When we get to this point, we have to be ready because the hope that we have has to do with talking about God and talking about Jesus, right? That's the sweaty palm moment or the heart beating moment. We have to be willing to plunge in and actually make reference to the fact that it's God working for us. And here's the neat thing. It's the hope that you have. It's the hope that you have. And here's the really thing. Here's the great thing because it's personal. Your story is powerful and personal. This person is asking you a question and you have an opportunity to talk about the hope that you have. The hope that you have well, the general information about Jesus is hope that I have too. How you got there, what happened, is going to be di different. The demon-possessed man in our reading had a powerful and personal story here. Jesus said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Your story is not wrong. It's your story. Your story is different than my story, but it's your story. People will listen to your story provided it's short and to the point. Your story is interesting. Right? Your story is interesting, and they will listen. Why? And everybody likes to talk about themselves, and everybody really likes to hear how something has changed a person's life. And sometimes when you're telling your story, the person will look at you sort of bug-eyed because your story is in part their story. What you're saying is so deeply connected to them, they can't believe it. Or it's one step off and they always, oh, but it sort of makes complete sense to me. So your story and my story and the man in the Bible passage, we all had a three-part story. This is what my life was. The man in the pastor says, oh, my life was out of control. I, I, I acted in strange ways. I couldn't keep a job. I drove all my friends and family crazy. Nobody wanted to be around me. They chained me up and I'd break them. I don't have this indescribable power. I ended up being homeless, living in the cemetery. And then I connected with Jesus. This guy came along and he changed my life. He touched me. He prayed for me. And this is what my life has become. Now, I'm sane. I'm normal. People like to be around me. I can talk to people. Amen. This is what my life was. Then I connected with Jesus. 
and this is what my life has become. It's a three-part story. I'm talking about my story. I grew up in the Christian church. I went, uh, sorry, I grew up in a church in New England. When every Sunday, I heard lots of sto- stories and descriptions about being good. We were here about the Good Samaritan all the time. And then my girlfriend, when I was a senior in high school, gave me a cassette tape. I'm dating myself. She gave me a cassette tape. And it was a Christian comedian who talked about, amongst other things, my sin and my need to accept Jesus and have my sins forgiven. And I had never heard anything like this growing up in the church. And I prayed to accept Christ at my desk in my bedroom. I prayed one night and I opened my eyes. I expect to see fireworks or something. And nobody told me. Because my parents, I call this cultural Christians. My, it was like we were cultural Christians. The next night, I did the same thing. Three nights in a row, I prayed the same thing, expecting something to happen. And it finally dawned on me, no, Mark, there wasn't going to be this thing going on. But that's, and ever since then, my life has taken a different trajectory. That's my story. Each one of you has a story. And you want to be prepared to give your 30-second story. A challenge I heard long ago is um, consolidate your story onto a four-by-six index card. You say, well, I can't do that, Mark. Oh, you can. You have to. It's like, that's like 30 or 45 seconds of speaking. The three steps. This is what my life was. Then I connected with Jesus. This is what my life has become because it's your story and powerful. And now you have something meaningful to tell anybody. Anybody you're casting around, person on, right? If you're a fisherman, you know, Fish on is what they say, right? So personal, you didn't get it. Never mind. Um, but anyway, so, 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 so let's be clear about where we've come so far. We know that, we know that uh, God wants us to be talking to people. But we've considered this challenge that God gives us to pursue this. And we've had this little appetizer almost. It's so the table set. We have this little appetizer of, oh, I should prepare my story because I've already got it. I've just never really thought about summarizing it. We can prepare my story. And now we're going to move on to the entree, okay, of equipping you a little bit further. Now, when you talk to somebody, when you have one of these conversations, the conversation with the guy next to me on the plane, uh, there are a couple super standard questions that come from people like this, like super standard. There's no rocket science at all to it, and you can easily be prepared and equipped to answer them. So here's the first question I think that comes up. Yeah, but I don't know if I'm really ready to believe this God stuff. You don't really think God exists, do you? You've heard this before, haven't you? Now remember, the person who's saying this is saying it because God is working on them a little bit. They're actually intrigued and interested. And so they're trying to, they don't know what to do with this sort of feeling they have in them. And so they don't even quite know how to express it or what to say. So they're just sort of saying this thing out there as they're trying to work their way through it. And since you know that God is real, we want to eliminate barriers with simple truths. This whole thing we're talking about is, we can call it Christian apologetics. My experience and what I've heard about Christian apologetics is Christian apologetics do not bring people to Christ. They eliminate barriers so they can get serious about thinking about Christ. So don't expect... I don't expect this conversation with me on next plane is going to, um, I don't expect him to pray to accept Christ right then. Believe me, I will ask him. And um, 
but I don't expect it to happen then, but I can eliminate barriers. So then he continues up on this journey on the angle scale. He continues up. It's like, oh, now maybe he's ready to think about this next piece. Make this further step, right? That's, it's just this process that we are on. And so what do we do with this person? What do we do with this person here who says, yeah, but I don't know if I'm really ready to believe this God stuff. You don't think the Bible exists, do you? It's like, uh, you don't think God really exists, do you? It's like, well, yeah, I do think God exists. And you think, oh, shoot, I don't have anything to say. I just think he exists. You got you to prepare, remember? Always be prepared. So we're going to prepare a little bit, okay? And so here's how we're going to prepare. It's going to sound complicated when it starts, but it's not, okay? Just trust me. And because God is a God of reason and order that we see in science, we get to bring something of reason and order and science right to the equation, okay? Here it is. Seems like a mouthful, but it's not. The first law of thermodynamics says that what? Matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. Why does this matter? It matters in a simple, simple way, okay? And I'll go, I'll go to the punchline and come back. And that is, stuff can't create itself. It needs a creator. And science tells us this. We know that the form of something can change. You can take water, and you can change its form by freezing it. Or you can take the same water, and you can boil it and evaporate it off. You haven't destroyed it. You've simply changed the form that it's in. And we can go look, you know, scientists can go to and look further and further and further. We can go to the cellular level, and then they can go to the molecules, and then they can go to the atoms. But that stuff can't be destroyed. It can just be refabricated and changed around and changed, changed around. But it can't be gotten rid of nor are we capable of making that stuff. It's there, and it just changes around. So stuff can't be, can't, stuff can't create itself. It needs a creator. And so that creating can, does not happen naturally. It can only happen supernaturally. Super, the prefix meaning above or beyond only the higher power of God can operate above and beyond the natural. That's why we call it supernatural. And so this first law of thermodynamics provides for us scientific truth, scientific proof of a truth that we read in Scripture in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. When you go outside and you look around, you're looking at the proof of God's existence because matter can't create itself. It had to get there somewhere, and we're not capable of doing it. It also explains perfect sense why we read this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth because it has to be God creating it because people can't do it. So what we're saying is the stuff around us proves the existence of God. It's simple, isn't it? You don't really believe that God exists, do you? Well, yeah. Well, because the, the stuff around us proves it because we're not capable of making matter and we can't destroy matter. The first law of thermodynamics says that. We can't. And person, oh, wow. Oh, didn't mean to step into this one. But that's, but that's what we're able to say in a really simple way. And there's a related law or statement that proves to us that the order and complexity of our world, because it's amazing, isn't it? The order and complexity of our world tells us the same sort of thing. It's the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that systems move toward disorder from order. 
If you don't believe that, look at my desk or your teenager's room or those of you with more hair than me when you get up in the morning. Things move from a state of order to disorder. We only see things getting more complex and more ordered with intentional, intelligent, outside influences. In other words, improvements and complexity and order is imposed by someone. Houses don't build themselves, do they? We bring in electricians and carpenters and plumbers, and they bring their knowledge and their specialized tools to a location, right? And then they get a whole bunch of materials. And in a very systematic way, they start assembling those materials, and they cut them, and they shape them, and they move them around. It's just not a craziness they do. There's a specific order to it. And from this pile of junk, the stuff, they build a beautiful house because they're, they're, they're imposing order and intelligence and structure. Does that make sense to you? Now, you might be thinking, oh, hold on a minute, hold on. Mark, aren't you just talking about evolution? Are you just talking about evolution here? Well, no. What I'm actually talking about is a direct contradiction of Darwin's theory of evolution, the theory that we were all taught in high school. What I'm saying here is the first and second law of thermodynamics are a direct contradiction of what Darwin says. Darwin stated that all creatures in the world come about by three processes. Do you remember what they are? No, you don't, so I'm going to tell you. And you should remember what they are. <laughs> Mutations, natural selection, and long periods of time. Creatures have things going on at the cellular level. That it's like, whoa, that wasn't supposed to go that way. This thing is supposed to reproduce a certain way. There are mutations going on all the time. You know what? And you know what? Go to the oncology ward in the hospital, and that's where all the mutations are. Mutations are not good for us. They're bad for us. We don't see this, suddenly see a deer running through the woods with a trunk sticking out of it, right? No, they're taken down by the wolves like that. Mutations are not helpful, and there's no way for our bodies to create these mutations. The only changes that happen with species is the minor stuff. George Washington was six feet tall, and he was a giant. Now I've got kids who are 6'4", looming over me. It's all changes within, okay? Well, oh, how did that happen? Some, two fingers, and I go back. Isn't that cool? Two fingers back, one finger forward. <laughs> Natural selection. So mutations, and then, and then, and then nature decides what the best changes are and helps them along. And over long, 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 long periods of time, from nothing, from essentially nothing, all these mutations keep going, and we have all life on Earth. That's what Darwin says. If you pay attention, what he's saying is, from the simplest forms of life, all creatures in the world have sprung from that very thing. And the second law of thermodynamics says, no, 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 no. We move from order towards disorder. We don't move from order to more order. Naturally, it goes the opposite way, and you know it's true. Everything turns into disaster without attention, right? Look at your lawn. Everything, everything moves in our lives towards disorder, naturally. It's only when we impose something intelligent from the outside that it happens, okay? And it's even, even more complicated than that. If you look in my eyes right now, you can't see it, but there are like 200 biochemical reactions taking place right now in my eye. And if one of those doesn't work, and meeting up with the, uh, the physical stuff here, I have these unworking blobs in my eyes. 
We can't slowly mutate towards all of a sudden having a functioning eye. No, we've got this blob here. It's either working or it's not working, okay? And this issue is called irreducible complexity. Our world is so complex, we can't slowly morph our way into having the eyeball and all this other stuff. And I can even demonstrate something for you. Sort of interesting. I'll see how this goes. So, got my brown bag here. Everybody carries a brown bag to church, don't they? No. And so, I've got in my other little baggie here, I've got two things. I have this which is a mousetrap, okay? And then, and then last night, I went and I took apart a mousetrap. We've got the brown, the little wooden flapper, right? And there's the, whoops, there's a, little, there's a little thing where you put the peanut butter on and a couple little springs so it can wrap over. And you got the little trigger that you put in place there, you know? And so I can take this, and so I don't have any problem just reaching right in this bag, do I? Why? Because I've got a bunch of unassociated parts. And what Darwin says is, well, all those parts, they will find themselves and put themselves together. Now I can take the functional mousetrap. Setting a mousetrap in front of a crowd is not an easy thing to do, by the way. (laughs) And I can put this down in here. Now, reaching down to the bag is not quite so much fun, is it? Why is that? Because an intelligent being has imposed order and structure. Does that make sense? So I just reach right down in here. Well, I managed to do that safely, didn't I? <laughs> but that's, but that's this, issue of, this issue of irreducible complexity, okay? Darwin wants us to believe this, okay? God wants us to believe that the world, uh, we want to believe the world is full of complex interactions, what with this thing we call irreducible complexity. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That's what God says. So here's a summary of our point. God's God's existence is screaming at us from the natural world because of the existence of stuff and the order of stuff. Now, I said to you, there's a second question you're going to get from the guy sitting next to you or the lady sitting next to you on the plane, right? Second question is this, come on. Don't you think the Bible is just, just a bunch of myths written by men? Now, that's a little bit different, isn't it? I think the Bible, what are they saying? What are they saying? Isn't this funny, the claims that people make? You go on the internet, oh, what do you say? Like, oh, I don't know. We didn't land, we didn't land astronauts on the moon. Yeah, the Holocaust wasn't real and Elvis is still alive. You know, we could read everything. People take that same skepticism and they say, yeah, I don't think Jesus was really real. Come on, you don't believe that Jesus was really real. See how they do this? I think it's just a bunch of myths just telling us what to do. Well, you know what? Historians tell us that Jesus was a real man that lived 2,000 years ago. I'm not talking Bible here. I'm talking secular historians. Tells us Jesus was a real historical person who said and did amazing things. That's what the secular historians tell us. So I'm going to tell you quickly some of the stuff that they said, and then we'll wrap, okay? So we have this guy here, Josephus, 93 AD. He was a Jewish historian. He's not, so he's not a Christian believer, okay? He doesn't like Christians, He writes in one of his history books, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds 
and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah, and when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had him condemned to a cross. But those who loved him didn't cease, and the tribe of Christians so called after him have still been meeting to this day and have not disappeared. Josephus says, whoa, there was this guy named Jesus. And then there was this guy, Tacitus. He was a Roman historian from a couple, hundred, for a, from a couple decades later. He was writing about Nero. If your history is okay, you know that 60, what, 64 AD, Rome burned. And Nero was crazy. He was crazy. And a lot of people believe that Nero was the one that started the fire that torched Rome. And then he had to look for a scapegoat, and he scapegoated Christian believers. And that is what caused like, the dispersion of Christians out of the area. But So here's what Tacitus says. Hence, to suppress the rumor that Nero had started the fire, he, Nero falsely charged and punished Christians who were hated for their beliefs. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the time and reign of Tiberius. But that pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again not only throughout Judea, where the mischief originated, but throughout the city of Rome also. You can see he doesn't like Christian believers, does he? We say, look, I'm an historian. Here's what I see. And then the last one, we've got this other interesting one, Pliny, around that same time. He's, the, um, he's a governor, and he writes a letter to Emperor Trajan saying, basically, I'm trying to figure out how I'm supposed to be punishing Christians for what they believe. He writes, in the meantime, I've taken this course about those who have been brought before me as Christians. I ask them whether they were Christians or not. If they say that they were, I ask them again, and a third time mixing in threats with questions. If they persevered in their confession, I order them to be executed. It was their fashion at that time to meet together before it was light and to sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. Isn't that awesome? We have these secular historians of the day confirming the reality of the existence of Jesus Christ. Somebody, whenever somebody says, oh, wasn't this, the Bible just a myth? Well, I'll say, well, listen, Jesus Christ wasn't a myth. All, his, all secular historians worth anything will tell you Jesus existed. The question is not whether he existed or whether he was crucified. The question is what happened three days later. That's the only question. And that's the question that we have to look, at, look at. You know, so... So we've got this stuff about the existence of Jesus, and the Gospels make it really clear what Jesus did. One of my favorite passages come to us out of the Gospel of John. John's sort of curious, and he sends some, some people to, to Jesus to ask him this question. Jesus, who are you? So, he, so Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's pretty miraculous stuff, isn't it? That's the sort of stuff that Jesus did. And then he said, what? I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus did amazing things, and he specifically said that he was God. So Jesus did walk the planet 2,000 years ago which is why I can't wait until I get to go to Israel to walk those same areas. He walked the world 2,000 years ago. He said amazing things about who he was, and he did such miraculous things that nobody short of God could do those things. 
The next time somebody says to you, well, I think Jesus is just a myth, say, try to figure out a loving way to say, well, actually, you know what? I've heard that before, but it's interesting. There are historians at the time that wrote all about Jesus, and they're secular historians, so actually we can have confidence that Jesus did exist. And so it's worth turning around and looking at the Bible and seeing what he had to say. I want you to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. But to do that, you have to prepare a little bit. You prepare all day long with all sorts of stuff. All sorts of stuff you make preparations. I know what I'm doing tomorrow because I've already made plans for what I'm doing on Labor Day. You've made plans too. But the question is, have you made plans and equipped yourself for being able to explain the hope that you have because what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? I just want to encourage you. It's not a hard thing. It's not a complicated thing. It's not a scary thing. It's actually an awesome thing. I look forward to being on the airplane because you know what? We got three hours before we get to Philly. We got a long time to talk, right? And so it's one of those few times people will sit down. Well, you know what? The same thing can happen standing at the game, standing on the sideline watching a lacrosse game happening. You have a chance to talk to people. Cast out and see if they bite on it. And if they bite on it, you have confidence in knowing God is actually working on them and they want to have a conversation with you. If they ignore it, don't, don't have your feelings hurt. It's like, okay, hey, great game, isn't it? Shh, just don't bother because they're not ready for it. God's not working on them. So I just want to pray for you all right now that God would powerfully equip you, number one. And then I want to give you an opportunity. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're saying, dang, I didn't know he was real and he died on the cross for me, I want to give you a chance to say, I want to change my story. It's going to be, here's what I was, and then I met Jesus, okay? So I want to pray for you first about your equipping. Heavenly Father, I pray for each person here. Lord, I pray that you would give them equipping and confidence and excitement simply about sharing some simple truths about your existence, God, and the reality and existence of Jesus, and that we have something powerful to share with people. Lord, I pray that each person here would be equipped and made more conf confident. Do that great work because, Lord, you've assigned that job to us. In your wisdom, in your sovereignty, you've assigned that job to us, Lord. So help us to embrace it. Help us to do well. Help us to see success and just build up the excitement in us to do that very thing. We pray it in Jesus' name. And you know what? If you just but can keep your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're this morning thinking to yourself, I don't know Jesus, my Savior, but I want to. I would just say, slip up your hand right now so I can see you. Just slip up your hand. If you want Jesus as your Savior, slip up your hand right now. Anybody just slip up your hand. All right, there may be some of you who didn't, didn't have the, the courage to slip it up. So church, let's just all pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me. I accept that sacrifice. Help me to live your way, not mine. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.